Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCorsi and Matt Watson. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. Mr. Watson, how the hell are you? Doing pretty good, man. How are you doing? I'm really excited. What are you so excited about? This business we've been working on, baby. We're rich. You're talking about this podcast? What are you talking no, about? we're definitely not rich from the podcast. Uh, podcast is on the list of the many, many things that Mr. DeCourcy does that that don't make any money. That's correct. <laughs> I'm growing a rather uh, a rather lengthy list of these things. However, it appears as if we're bringing joy to the lives of our listeners, at least based on the comments in the Startup Hustle chat on Facebook. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about what happens when things actually go right and your business survives. It doesn't fail. You haven't made, you haven't failed on the triple mortgage on your home. And uh, you have some decisions to make or not. So you're saying business is going well and it's a success. Yes, this can happen. So that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? Like does success mean that like I'm not losing money anymore or like I don't have a burn rate or does success mean that I sold it for a billion dollars or what, what does that mean exactly? Well, I have my own definition of financial success. I don't know if it's unique to me, but I personally think that you're successful when you're no longer wor- financially successful when you're no longer worried about money. But in the terms of, of the business that we're talking about and you know this hypothetical thing that we've been uh, building throughout this five-part series, you know, I think we're talking about making a little money, like actually having some profit on paper. Money's money's the score, though, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's not really the goal. Well, for some it is. You know, not not all of us have sold a company for one hundred fifty million dollars. So some well, of, think, some of us are using a different scorecard here, Watson. Well, I, I think it's more about it's more about financial freedom, right? To your yeah. point, you're you're not as stressed out about that part of it. I think ultimately it's got to be fun, right? right. I mean, you got to get to the point where you're successful enough that you're. I mean, you've probably always been excited about your startup, but you get part, you get to that place where it's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. Um, you're, you're past, you know, you've, you've turned the corner, you're making money, you're growing, um, and you don't have as much stress anymore. And then maybe you can decide, do you continue to grow it or do you sell it? Or does it become kind of a lifestyle business? Well, and you know, I think we should define that the term lifestyle business is, a term used by some to decide or define the path that you're taking as ownership in your business. And, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, me included, um, like the idea of building something up and then selling it. And it's almost like rage, rest, repeat, you know, and, and many entrepreneurs enjoy the beginning and the end of any enterprise, but very much despise the middle, the mundane management tasks and stuff like that. And those are the things that you're going to get if you're running a lifestyle company. There's nothing wrong with any or either approach, but it really just depends on how and what you would like to do. Now, you personally have a little bit of experience building a company and, and you know, I've had some conversations with you off microphone uh, regarding 
the sale of your business. And there's obviously a lot of reasons that that was pretty awesome. And a few other reasons that you didn't really find that great. Am I right? Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we talk about it being a, a lifestyle company. So either way, it changes your lifestyle, right? right. So either you, I think you change your lifestyle the moment you decide to do it. So it's either, well, when you start your company too, yeah. right? Your, yeah. your lifestyle changes then. But if, if we go back to becoming a lifestyle company, I think my definition of that would be, you know, let's say, uh, let's pretend Stackify is making a million dollars a year in profit. Do I hire the people to run it? I step away from the day-to-day operations and I somehow collect a check. Or maybe I show up once a week and uh, whip, you know, snap the whip or something or whatever. But I'm out of the day-to-day operations and I'm just kind of collecting money from it. That's right. that's not what I would define as a lifestyle business no? at that point. No, I think a lifestyle business is when you're actively working in it. It's part of your lifestyle every day, meaning, you know, you're going to work, you're being involved. I think what you described is more along the lines of passive ownership. Okay. You know, as opposed to like being actively involved. And like I said, the li- the lifestyle term I always found kind of interesting because I think whenever you're working, work is part of your lifestyle. But, there, but so there yeah. are some people, though, that... So, for example, my wife worked in an accounting firm, and sometimes the owner showed up, sometimes they didn't, sometimes they left every day early to go golf, sometimes they did whatever the hell they wanted to do, right? And so maybe that's a good example of kind of a life. It was kind of a lifestyle business. I mean, I do that. Well, I know that's part of the problem. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Actually, but, that's not true, man. I feel like I'm always working. It's just a matter of what time of day. But, am I doing? And that's part of actually, like, if we're talking about the terms lifestyle, that's actually part of what I like about being an entrepreneur is being in control of my own destiny. And you know what, if I need, uh, you know, on Wednesdays, I go to my kids swim classes, right? You know, sure. just the ability to do that and not necessarily have to ask someone, hey, can I have Wednesdays at three o'clock off? Like, I mean, that's part of the lifestyle that you're looking for. And I think that that's part of what people like. Now, Unfortunately, sometimes going into some of these other things, I dragged the uh, the moments of the day that were good or bad with me along with it. But I think from an investor's perspective, when they think about somebody having a lifestyle business, that's usually a negative thing because yeah. they want somebody yeah. that's 100 percent dedicated to it, trying to grow that thing as fast right. as possible, not taking off every afternoon to go golf or go yeah. to their daughter swim class. Or yeah, that's actually a question that that VCs and investors will ask you. They'll say, you know, what's your what's your exit strategy? And if you say, well, I don't have one, I plan on owning this company for the next 40 years. That might not necessarily be seen as a good thing to the investor. A lot of investors want their money back. But right. so as but as somebody who has been through this and done this, um, I always I would not actually argue that selling your company is usually the best outcome. Right. Now, I want to talk. And I got a good reason why. Well, I, I, yeah. And, and I want to get into that. So, you know, with Venn Solutions, at some point, you know, there's this term tipping point, you know, and that's kind of where you go from maybe being not profitable to profitable, or maybe when you're not burning cash or just when things start going your way. Like, at what point did you realize with Venn Solutions, like, hey, this is actually going to work? And this might actually be big. Now you're laughing. (laughs) About seven and a half years into it. (laughs) It's not abnormal. Well, so. And and how long after that did you sell it? 
Well, that's right when we were like three, three yeah. months later. Yeah, that's when we were selling. <laughs> well, so I mean, we knew it was going to work four or five years later, probably for sure, right? We knew we had something and it was growing. But the, I think the the point is there. At some point in time, it gets to be a lot of fun. Like mm-hmm. the machine is moving, the business is growing. Sales like, cures sales, man. Th- things are just going yeah. right and. And the problem you run into, here's one of the problems you run into when you get to the stage is you're like, okay, my company is worth, and I'll just throw out a number, it's worth $10 million. But at the rate we're growing, next year it'll be worth $20 million because we're growing fast. So why don't we just wait and we'll sell the company next year? Well, what happens is you get to that exact same moment in time and you're like, okay, my company's worth $20 million. We wait till next year, it'll be worth 30 or $40 million. And that just kind of perpetually can go, right? And, and it can. And I've actually talked to, and I won't name who, but uh, you know, a local investor who had an opportunity as an investor to exit a company for a very large amount of money. And they had that same situation. And then a year later, a lot of things had changed. And a, and a potential like you know forty million dollar exit turned into a company that was no longer doing well. So yeah, in some industries and companies, you're going to have a window of opportunity, right? Sure. Because things things around you can change, right? Obviously, look at Groupon or something like that, right? They like they were in a like nobody does that anymore. Like that whole like business segment like doesn't exist. Like my wife used to wake up every morning and wonder what the Groupons were or whatever, right? Some things are trendy and they're hot and maybe they're kind of, you know, they're booming. I think Groupon's probably still wildly profitable though. They're still around. Yeah, they're still around. I couldn't tell you the last time I saw anything about them. Right. It's just not new. Right. Right. But uh, so certain things do have a window of opportunity to your point. So what's your business worth? I mean, how do you determine that there? and, And that's such a loaded question because there's at least 500 answers. Well, so a SaaS business that sells like reoccurring has reoccurring revenue. You know, usually they're worth four, five, six times annual recurring revenue, right? But we had somebody like Jeff Julian on um, a couple episodes ago, and you know it was a consulting business, and you know business like that might be worth one times annual revenue or five times EBITDA or ten times EBITDA. I mean, and for those of you listening, Jeff Julian will actually be the episode after this one. All right. <laughs> so, Time machine. Yeah. So, it just so goes, our future guest, Jeff Julian, guest. will apprise you. Yeah. So, it, I mean, so that was more of a consulting services business, right? Um, you know, from every type of business is different. So, um, it, it's just hard to say. But the SaaS businesses usually are four, five, six, seven times annual recurring right. revenue. And, and brick and mortar are oftentimes less than that. Um, it really kind of depends on what they are. Like a retail store might be a two and a half times multiplier. Now let's actually hit a little vocab here because you use the term SaaS, S-A-A-S, software as a service. Um, that's going to be a specific type of you know market segment where you're going to have retail, which often known as brick and mortar. You're going to have service-related businesses. And the reason that some of these companies are worth so much is the, the amount of time, effort, money, and heartache that it takes to acquire these customers, well, it's pretty freaking valuable. Well, what's, what's also interesting is you know, back at, at Venn Solutions at a, at a point in time, you know, I always joked with Mike, who was a CEO, and said, hey, you know, we're making $10, 20000000 million a year in revenue. 
worst case scenario, we could fire like every one of our employees right. and we could just sit around yeah. here and collect 10 or $20 million of revenue, right? Because it was reoccurring revenue. That, and, I, and I have no idea what that is technically called, but I call that cash cow mode. And that's like literally if you just need to put this cow out in the pasture and just let it yeah. and just let it and just milk money out of it until it's gone. It's not probably the right way to do things in regards to your customers no. because you're not going to have no. much support. You're not going to innovate. No, it's a terrible new, thing. But, it but, is it, an but that's what's great about these types of companies yeah. is they have reoccurring revenue where you take a more of a service based business like a future Jeff's company where he he. He does a project for somebody, right? But then he's got to go find the next project, yeah. right? There is no recurring revenue necessarily. Yeah. And, and that's, that's and why that's going to have a really low multiplier. Yep. Yeah. Where, you know, certain things like, for example, Gigabook, you know, I've had, there are people in the booking and, you know, that kind of space that have actually exited at more than 10 times revenue. And that's because businesses tip and especially big ones like large enterprise scale businesses they are more likely to stick with something even if it's not doing everything that they need than to try to switch to something else because the overall cost, effort, and just everything associated with that is really expensive. I always say it's like yeah. changing accounting systems or phone systems. Like yeah. nobody wants to do that right. shit. Well, nobody. Kind of like I don't really like my bank, but I stay there because I would probably have to spend a day disconnecting all the things that draft in and out of it and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, so, I, I, so I think the key yeah. here is that the stickier you are with your customers, right. the harder you are to right. get rid of, the more valuable you're going to be. Now, with Vent Solutions, you guys were doing something that was pretty innovative at the time you didn't have men how many were there any other people that were doing exactly what you were doing well our, so part of our secrets of success is we had four or five products together on one platform and so when people would ask you know who do you compete with the answer was always everybody or nobody because you could go buy the individual products from a lot of different people sure but we were kind of a one-stop shop and we had a lot of bells and whistles and stuff that nobody else had because of putting it all together. We we did have one or two people that were trying to replicate what we were doing. Um, and, and people eventually, you know, got there and eventually catch up, right? But um, but we did really well with that strategy. So here I am and I've got this company and it's just, you know, we're churning along and we're really kind of crushing things. If I decide I want to sell it, how do I go about that? Do I wait for people to come to me? Did you like, and you know, let's, let's use your real life expertise here. Did you go seek people and say, Hey, we're for sale or how did that work? Well, I think you got a couple options. You can talk to potential strategic investors or acquirers. So that are in your industry or space, somebody you have a relationship with or partnership with, right? So for example, in automotive, it, it could have been um, other big software vendors in that industry that do acquisitions, right? A lot of industries, you've got the big players and they, they acquire little guys all the time. And so if you have a relationship with them, potentially you could talk to them direct. Um, ultimately, we used a firm that happened to be in San Francisco that had did some transactions before in our industry. They had sold companies before, just like us. So we we reached out to them and said, hey, we're we're thinking about raising capital. Ultimately, that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to raise like $30, $40 million or sell the company. And they ran this whole big project. So they um, they made the craziest looking Excel spreadsheets I've ever seen in my life that had our whole financial models in it and all this crazy stuff. And then they sent our, you know, deal package out to 
all these big private equity firms. So and, you had an agent, yeah, a broker. Yeah, we had a, a, a business broker or whatever you want to call them that, that did all the hard work and they basically teed us up to come and do the dog and pony show for all these potential acquirers and investors. So at one point, how many suitors did you have? Uh, there was probably at least 10 that oh, wow. had made really good offers. That were either acquisition or that we're going to invest, you know, thirty million bucks or whatever it was going to be. And so, so you know, and that's funny because I've known you for quite a while at this point. I didn't realize that it was either a capital raise or a, a sale. Yeah, we actually went into it looking to do a capital raise because we the company had been bootstrapped the whole time, and we were growing so fast that you know we couldn't afford to you know spend five hundred grand to buy a bunch of servers and infrastructure and build out, and like we were always behind the eight ball trying to, you know, we, we couldn't, we couldn't hire extra people or do anything extra to get ahead of the game. We were always behind. So what, what made the determination behind, Hey, we should take this capital or Hey, we should sell. I mean, I, I, obviously a, a, a fat payday is going to get your attention at some point. Well, so, so what, what happens is you get into that same mode that I mentioned earlier, where it's like somebody invests a hundred million dollars or somebody offers $100 million to your company and you're like, oh, well, I'm the cute girl or boy now. Everybody wants me. I'm worth $100 bucks. Well, if I just wait a year, I'll be worth $200 bucks. Um, and, and that's a hard place, right? That's yeah, a hard that's what mentality. I was going to ask is, is I, I've heard people that have been in this situation refer to that first sleepless night. And that's where it's like you come home and you're like, hey, honey, oh, how was your day? Oh, it was great. Someone offered me $100 million for the business. Huh? Like that's, I mean, that's life changing at yeah. that point. Like that's, that's gotta be pretty hard. To, so how was that? So it, it was fun. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a long process, right? So we started with this business broker who was sending all our information out to all these different people. So it was waves and waves and waves of talking to people and doing the dog and pony show from, you know, at first it was phone calls and then we were flying to meet these people and they were coming to meet us. And we, so we went, it, it was we we ended up with this uh, expression. Um, I'd call and and uh, answer the phone, and one of the other guys would always say, "It's like every day, every day." Like that was the expression because it was like every day we had a better offer. We had it was more money, a, a better offer, a different deal, and and it was crazy. It was the craziest that, thing. You, yeah, you, in order to have an auction, you have to have multiple. Yeah, numbers. yeah, because we had yeah. ten different people, so we were going back to all of them, saying, "Hey, okay, here's where we're at here. Here's where we're at here." Do you think that's a problem with businesses that are highly niche? Like when it comes to an exit, like you've now got a potentially finite amount of people that might want to buy you. I think there's always private equity people that want to just acquire things okay. because they're they're looking at the revenue streams, right? I mean, sure. we, at that time we were doing like over 30 million a year in revenue and, and could do 20 plus percent EBITDA margins and whatever. It was a, it was a strong business. So PEs will, will, will buy those no matter what. I have a question. When you did sell the company, did you get paid with a giant check? I mean, like one of those lottery checks, that's like six feet across. No. <sighs> It's really disappointing. I bet we could buy one on Amazon, though. Yeah, well, I get that. But, I mean, <laughs> when you look back at this whole process, is that easily the part that you feel like you would have done over? The big check? Yeah. No. Okay. No. Well. <laughs> no, the money was wired. 
that's not fun at all, man. <laughs> Actually, it probably would be. I could get over a hell of a lot of stuff for a payday like that. So, you know, a couple other things that go with that is, you know, I remember at one point, you know, talking about multiple multiple buyers, multiple bidders. What are some of the things that these people are asking you at this point? What are their concerns? What are the, how do they play it? Like, how does that, how does that, uh, that hand of cards go for both sides? You know, most of them didn't have too crazy of questions. My, um, my business partner was scared to death all along that we had to have our code documented. Mm. He thought we had to have like this end to end crazy documentation around the code of the system, how it worked, like the product, like all this crazy stuff. Do you think that's important? Cause I might have some work to do. Uh, nobody cared. Okay. It never came up. <laughs> he was like terrified by that. I can and understand why we were, Like, If you're going to buy something for that amount of money, you might want an owner's manual with it. Yeah. And, and, but then again, if you have smart people that work for you, they're probably going to figure it out. And I would assume that they have the ability to ask you a couple questions about it. They did. And I think what they cared more about more than anything was being able to retain the talent, right? There were certain key employees they want to make sure that had that knowledge that got retained. And, and they, they did do very well by those, those people, right? They, some of them got raises, they got bonuses for, staying stuff like that so did they want to make sure that those positions were solidified before the acquisition was complete i don't i don't think they did anything special there i think it was just part of the process um i think they i think it was just kind of a standard thing like they want to make sure who are the key employees how do they make sure that they stay i don't think they were deal contingent though they did they did retain employee number one who is my dad that's right he's still there yeah, I think that's. I don't. I don't think he was a key employee. Well, come but on, he, I'm sure he is. He, he's he, a linchpin. Yeah, he he's still there. He's a cornerstone. He's still there. Hopefully, he's listened to this and knows that at least someone said he was a key else. employee to me. Well, he was your first one. Yeah, and you know, I gotta say, any employee number one's always a critical employee. That's usually like a big step for a lot of businesses. He knows where all the bodies are buried for sure. Okay, <laughs> wow. So. So I don't think we had any other real weird requirements. We we did have one company that was going to acquire us that we knew uh, was sort of like the galactic empire, like Darth Vader was the CEO and uh, nobody really wanted to sell the company to them um, because they had like weird rules, like their weird healthcare rules and they didn't allow soda in the office and there was weird. no smoking on campus and all of our employees smoked and uh so, like, nobody wanted us to sell the company. To did that. you sell to the highest bidder? Um, we did. You did? We did. But this particular company was one of the ones that was in the running. And, um, that, like, that it was, was like we it, it was such a big deal that we wanted to keep it a complete mystery, like, they, when they came to see us, that nobody knew who they were. Like, mm-hmm. it was such a big deal. Like, there was such a negative perception of them. And so that's the other thing with this. Like, when you're selling your company... In some, in some sense, you are selling your baby, right? And yeah. you want your, your the new parents to work well with your all your employees sure. and, and if you're going to work for them. so Now, there's kind of a, an entertaining, or I don't know if it's entertaining, but a fact that I found to be very interesting. You at, Prior to acquisition, you previously mentioned you had four or, five, four or five working products within what you had built, right? Right. How many of them actually became products that the acquiring company used after? 
Well, we're sitting here several years later today. Um, so what was kind of funny is they did a bunch of different acquisitions in the, in, in the industry. So they actually acquired other companies that did one of those products. And then so what happened over time is they took the baby and ripped it apart. So we had these like five products that all worked really well together. But they acquired some other company that did this one and some other company that did this one and another company that did this one. And they ripped the baby apart. So now it primarily is one of those products. And my dad has had the fun of uh, working on integrating and migrating stuff between the companies and whatever. We actually have three employees here at Stackify that got laid off uh, because of one of those like product teams got let go. They, you know, now it's, I think it's also an interesting fact, you know, Vent Solutions is very much a viable business. They're a top employer here in, in, in Kansas Yeah, City. absolutely. They're doing I, great. I know quite a few people that work they for They have like them. 500 employees. Yeah. And I mean, that's a lot. How many did they have when you... It was about half of that. It was like 250. Okay. So they've still grown it. Now, in Million Dollar Bedroom, in which you were kind enough to do an interview about some of this, you talked about the anticlimactic nature of selling the business. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. Because I think a lot of people think that here's this huge payday. And with that, you know, confetti streamers, you know, champagne popping. But what was it like the next day when you woke up and you didn't own the business anymore? I don't think much had changed. Um, you know, it was it was sort of anticlimactic to me. I mean, it was sort of like getting off the roller coaster. It's like now what? Now what, right? Yeah. It's like um it the journey of this was the fun part. Like the six months before that was a lot of fun. It was fun going and screwing around with all the uh the P, the private uh, equity groups and and all that that was sort of fun. It was entertaining to go. Do I'm sure. I'm sure that that would be fun. Unlike, and every day, yeah. like getting all these offers, like right. that was a lot of fun. And then all of a sudden, it was like just kind of over. So, how old were you when that happened? I was 29. Oh my god! So, well, congrats on that. Yeah. Um, now, with that, at 29, you're certainly not done working. You no. you could have been at that point. I, so, I probably should have. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I probably should have. Hey, I should have, like, ran off to an island somewhere. It, I, if you decide to enable that plan at any point, just please let me know because I'm probably just going to follow. So if the island's big enough, I could be on it for years. And <laughs> you might not even know. You'll come find me on the other side of the island looking like Tom Hanks and Castaway or something, but I'll be happy. Um, no responsibility, right? So here you are, and you have to decide what you want to do going forward. What were some of the things that uh, led to the decision to start another business? Just trying to solve a problem that was kind of scratching my own itch. Um, you know, is the former CTO of that company had 40 developers that worked for me. It was just really looking to build a product that kind of solved my day-to-day -day needs. It was a problem I understood that I had vision for. And you were a guy looking for something to do. And I, yeah, I was looking for something to do. And um, very quickly realized that the, I've definitely never been a person that really lives and survives in the corporate world. But, you know, after getting acquired, things just change. Like, it's sort of weird. Like, consultants show up every day for, like, random things you don't understand. And just, 
it's just different, right? When you have somebody else to report to, um, they left us alone quite a bit for the first like six months or so. But yeah, it's just like meeting after meeting with the mothership and we and how consultants. Long did, how long did you stick around after the acquisition? Didn't they want you there for a little bit? And then one day it was just like, all right, see ya. Well, we, so the way that the deal got structured is we had an earn out for a few months. And so we got, you know, 90% of the money up front and the other 10% was contingent on us sticking around for a few months and, and hitting some goals and projections, right? So, and they, and they want to do that so you don't just completely abandon everything. Yeah. You're not just like, here yeah. you go, see ya. Well, so I, we, we basically worked through, I worked through basically the earnout period and I sat down with the CEO who was my main business partner and I asked him, I'm like, hey, I got this idea to go start Stackify and how long do I have to stay here? Like, you know, <laughs> How long do I, I, I didn't get work? the big, I didn't get the big check on paper, but I did get the yeah. big check. I'll do whatever I got to do. Do I got to stay here for like two years or three or 10 or like, what's the deal? And he just said, he's like, look, Matt, you're 29 years old. They just hand you a bunch of money. They don't expect you to stay. They expect you to go apeshit. And they bit, expect right? you to go a little apeshit. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, they abolished slavery a long time ago. They know you're not going to work here as some slave. Uh, and they don't want you walking around here like a zombie all day. So if you don't want to be here, you don't got to be here anymore. So I said, see ya. And I was out of there. And we don't have to linger on this for too long. I just know that the, that whoever's listening to this is going to find this interesting. What changed, what changed in your life? How, how did, how did a big check or a big wire transfer change like what what happened as a result of that in and around your life i would say it hasn't really changed it hasn't changed me or my life uh all of that much um, i will say you guys are remarkably humble i i think what it it changes the everybody's perception and it pretty much pisses everybody off everybody hates you Immediately. I mean, that's, that's the it's weird, isn't it? number one thing, because no matter what you do, you are an asshole. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, I can buy my sister a car. I can be the nicest guy in the world. And I buy her a car. Literally every person they handle in my family hates me because I didn't buy them a car. Yeah. Like you can't do, you can't do, you can't do good by anybody. Um, and, and I'm not, I can't be like Oprah and buy everybody a car. But you could, but that probably would just lead to now wanting another car or a house or something like that. And I mean, you, you end up with these really weird and bizarre relationship dynamics with people. So for example, your like best friend you've had forever, like if you're going to go out to dinner with them, you're buying them dinner or you're eating at Taco Bell. And now like, I'm not going to fucking Taco Bell for dinner with my friend. So I got to buy him dinner every single time, right? Like well, you that's why weird... I, I at least Rochambeau you for it. Yeah. And then actually, well, I, I'm not as good at the Rochambeau when it comes to lunch. When it actually matters, I'm actually a fair. <laughs> yeah, I, you're a great lunch date for uh, Rochambeau. God, that's a good but point. I think you've been hustling me in here. You <laughs> let me win in here. And, and, you know, like, I think that you should, uh, someone posted on the Startup Hustle chat, a robot that wins yeah. rock, paper, scissors every time. I think we should buy two of those and see what and happens. see what happens when, when they, they fight each, each other. other. Yeah. yeah, that might take a while. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but the, the, the point is it, it changes your dynamics a lot with, with family and, and friends. I didn't have a lot of people that come 
out of the woodwork. My uh, one of my other business partners claimed that he did, and he was like throwing money all over the place and doing stupid stuff. That's why lottery winners. I told everybody that's why lottery no. winners end up broke. Most of them do. Yeah, you know, they they have all these people coming from six thousand different directions, and you know the money that seems like it doesn't have a bottom does. And I think a lot of people also uh, make really bad investments and they stuff do. like that. You know, they they uh, rather than you know just going with things that are probably close to proven winners, they end up you know with family members talking them into investing in you know a fidget spinner franchise or something like that. And you know they, I don't know. It just uh, I think that if you aren't used to having money, all of a sudden having it can be a curse. In a lot of ways, it is. Um, in all seriousness, everybody hates you. You're the most hated person. That's interesting. You know, and I haven't had nearly the amount of financial success that that you've had, but I've had enough to know the the unpopularity part. It's a it's a lonely place. It really is. It, it, it is kind of weird. And you know, like I said, it's not as extreme as it's been. But you know, even for example, like when I got married, I told you I had some issues because I had a bunch of people. I got married in St. Thomas, and I had a bunch of people that were upset that I didn't pay for them to go to St. Thomas. We we legitimately did the smallest wedding humanly possible to get away from everyone. The last thing I wanted to do was import them all to the but you Caribbean. Were, but you were nice and paid for a couple of them to go. I did. I, but you were a complete asshole for not paying for the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean. That's yeah. what happens to me every day. You know, week. honestly, I paid for the people that had been, that had been supportive of the business that made it possible for me to even consider that as an option. And some other people that had been supportive just in life. Now it was the people that were haters along the way that seemed to despise the success that we had. It's amazing how some people that are close to you and the people that should really give a shit the most can really almost feel like they're not rooting for your success in I mean, some regards. It's weird. Ultimately, the key was uh, finding other friends that you could relate to that were in similar situations, right? So I have a lot of new friends that are other business owners that have you know, been successful, done different things or whatever. Kind of like people you host a I, podcast with I don't, for therapeutic reasons. I don't have to go to dinner with them to Taco <laughs> Bell, right? Like we can go to I like Taco Bell. Capital Grill or whatever. I like Whatever Taco it is. Bell, man. If you ever want to go to Taco Bell, I am your guy and I'll pay. I'm not going to Taco Bell, even if you pay. Okay. I think I owe you a lunch. Yeah, I owe you it. And by the way, don't ever, if you bet lunch with Watson, don't ever leave it open-ended on where you're going to go. Because <laughs> you're going to end up with like Ruth Chris or something. I'm like, do they even, are they even open for lunch? Oh, yeah. So, well, you know, that's some interesting insight. And now, now let's go ahead and say, look, I think most of us will deal with the problems that come with that. Mo money, mo problems. Hey, but I'll, I'll, I'm willing to take these on. These, it, are, these are challenges that I'm willing and able to solve on many I, levels, I think. There's one more thing I want to say about this. Sure. Is the people with the most, the most stuff have the most amount of stress. Yeah. And there's, there's absolute truth to that. If you've got four homes and 10 cars and all this crazy shit you got to deal with, it is just all stress. The people who have the least amount of stress in their life have the least amount of stuff. It's the battle I have every day with my wife. She buys a bunch of shit and then she complains that it's all over the house and we got to clean it up. I'm like, stop buying this shit. We'll have less shit to clean and we'll argue less. I think our families are actually keeping 
some of the toy industry and business. Yeah, absolutely. It, all right. If you're listening to this and you're willing to come pick up children's toys <laughs> and, and you're going to need a truck, call Bungie. Use the bungee app to schedule a truck to come to our homes, and I'm sure you can have quite a bit of toys. Well, hey, look, I, you know, I think that Matt, thanks for sharing a lot of that. I think that that is insight and information into the experience. That yeah, I'm going to ask you guys as listeners: Are you willing to accept all those challenges and problems that come with that? Because I think you probably are. Um, you know. And this is going to probably be the least Zen thing I'm ever going to say. But they say money can't buy you happiness. It can on some levels get you a little peace of mind if you use it correctly. Um, there's a there's a quick diminishing return. Yeah, yeah. You have to be. It's a very it's a very tight balance. And you know I think that's why you see a lot of people like for example, uh, you know the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You know literally like I'm going to make it. I'm going to give a lot of it away because you can only what are you going to do with $60 billion? Let's be realistic. You know, like you can only, you can only buy so big of a jet. Right. Right. And, and so big of a boat. Right. And so, and so many cars yeah, and so many homes and stuff like that. And then, you know, there's a, there's a level of, of fulfillment and satisfaction that comes from helping other people get what they want that, you know, I, I think tends to drive a lot of these successful people to start giving it away that, and they're probably uh, earning more money off their money than they know what to do with. But. Well, and that's, that's something I alluded to earlier. So, I mean, one thing to consider is, is not selling your company. I mean, yeah. you know, they say, uh, so for example, you sell your company for a uh, hundred million dollars. Would you have more, would you have made more money hanging on to Ben Solutions oh, yeah. than sell you? Would? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And that, so that's the point. I mean, huh. you, you know, if you, let's say you take a hundred million dollars in, what are you going to do with it now? Go invest in the stock market. You're going to make, um, most all financial advisors will tell you to count on making a 4% annual return. That I invested all of mine in Bitcoin and this week it went down <laughs> incredibly big. And, but tune know, in next week to hear the Bitcoin. Yeah, we're actually going to do a Bitcoin and <laughs> cryptocurrency and blockchain series coming up. So but, you can but, hear all about that. But the point is, you know, in the stock market, you might make five to 10% a year. They say to count on like four because you're going to have some years it's going to be down, right? If you keep your business, what how you know what are the returns of owning your business and sure. the continued growth of it? It'd be worth significantly more. But until you get that first check, the first big, you know, uh, the big first you know giant check that you walk around with, one of those that you want. Until you get the first one of those, it's all different. Like because you know, Vent Solutions, I had employees and made a lot more money than I did. I was worth a lot of money on paper, but I didn't have any money. Um, so sometimes an opportunity to bring in private equity or something and sell part of the company. Sure. So looking back, maybe the smart thing we would have did would have been the sell quarter selling of it. part of it sure. and kept the rest of it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I don't know the stats on this. I'm absolutely shooting from the hip. But, you know, most successful entrepreneurs are going to have a handful of what I call windfall events. And, you know, that's the liquidation of a company yeah. or maybe you built something, you know, me and, and we've talked about my model. I try 10 things hoping that one will work entrepreneurial ADD, whatever you want to call it. But there's a lot of things that finally, when you get it right, you're like, oh, cool. And you know, you can cash in. And the question is, is, is can you either keep riding that pony or can you make it till the next time you get it right? So I think the bigger that, the bigger that lottery check is, the more of a runway you <laughs> give yourself to either be right or wrong. Run, so, little pony, run. Run, little pony, run. Well, 
Matt, thanks for sharing all that with us. For those of you listening, hopefully you realize we all got a lot of more work to do. So let's get back to doing it. Make sure to uh, join us on the Facebook or on the Facebook uh, version of the Startup Hustle Chat. I'm sure Matt will answer reasonable questions yeah, about absolutely. this episode. Um, he's always been very open and uh, and honest about a lot of this. And um, while you're here, can I borrow like $25 million? No, I don't have $25 million to give you. Damn it. Hey, they say if you don't ask, should I just keep working my way down? I'll tell you what. I'll give it to you on one of those big cardboard checks. <laughs> wait, it may not cash. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. Yeah. I'm setting myself up there. So, okay. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and sign off this episode and keep asking Matt Watson for money until he finally says yes. I'm guessing that's going to be somewhere between 3 and $5. <laughs> Satoshis? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> wait, that's like 10 cents. <laughs> Today, it might be worth 5 Anyway, see you guys next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCorsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.